Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, take your Bible this morning and look over to James chapter 5 as we come just to a time in the Word here, a bit abbreviated, and then we'll turn our attention um, over to communion towards the end of this morning as we partake of the Lord's table. Let me just read the text for you. It's a fascinating text, a wonderful text. It's found in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. It's the prayer of faith. It says in 5.13, If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The power, or the prayer, excuse me, of a righteous man has great power and it is as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. And then two other verses that will finish this out. But what a wonderful, wonderful section. I mean, if ever a man was qualified beyond our Lord Jesus Christ, to address the subject of prayer, it was James. In fact, when you look back in church history, the early church father, a man by the name of Eusebius, um, said this about James. He said in his writing that he used to enter alone in the temple and be found kneeling and praying for the forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God. So often, Eusebius said, did he pray that he was called, quote, old camel knees because he developed knots on his knees from his long seasons of prayers. I mean, we can each have a, a nickname, can't we? But James was old camel knees. So often was he on his knees in prayer that he developed that reputation. I mean, who do we know that prays so much that he develops knots, if you will, on his knees? In fact, one said that just as a day laborer's hands testify to his occupation or a runner's feet to his training, James' callous knees testified to the life of serious prayer. So we really need to listen to James and what he says, not only because, obviously, he is the Lord's earthly brother, not only because he is writing the Scripture, but because he walked his talk on his knees. So we enter into this section on prayer. One pastor said of prayer, very convicting to my own heart, he said prayer is an unnatural activity. He said, from birth we have been learning the rules of self-reliance as we strain and struggle to achieve self-sufficiency. Prayer, he said, flies in the face of those deep-seated values. Prayer is an assault on human autonomy and he said, on autonomy and determined to make it on our knees, he said, is very, very difficult. 
Prayer is an embarrassing interruption. Prayer is alien to our proud human nature. And so we need to learn how to develop our hearts in prayer. Now, as we look at one of the greatest passages on prayer in the Scripture, James is going to orient our heart towards fervent prayer. Remember, we said last week that he closes this letter with three crucial exhortations to the church. We looked at one of those last week. He exhorts us against foolish oath-taking. That's 5, verse 12. Then secondly, he exhorts us to prayer here in 5, 13 through 18. And then finally, he exhorts us to confront sin in people when we see it in verses 19 and 20. And we noted last week that each of these closing exhortations involves speech in one form of another. Certainly speech there to not take foolish oaths. Here, prayer is a form of speech in talking to God. And blessed is the one in the last two verses who confronts and turns a sinning brother from the error of his way. Each of these exhortations involves some type of speech. So we come to that tenth there in your bulletin and final test of our faith. It's tested in our truthfulness, in our prayer life, and in confronting a sinning brother. Last week, a radical call to speak truthfully. And this week, in 5.13-18, through 18, and we'll look at it next week as well, I've titled it, Prayer for All Circumstances. That's the theme here. In fact, you just note, if you just read through the text, seven different times he mentions prayer, doesn't he? Look at it again in verse 13. He says, if anyone is among you is suffering, let him pray. Look at verse 14. If anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Look at verse 16. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently. Verse 18, the seventh time, he prayed again and the heaven gave rain. So prayer then becomes the key component in our need for patience in the midst of difficult trials. I mean, it's a passage here about prayer. Now, what he does is he gives three circumstances in which we are to pray. Now, these circumstances that we'll look at govern all of life's responses. I say circumstances because three different times he asks that question. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he'll ask the second question, is anyone among you cheerful? And then he'll ask that final question there, is anyone among you sick? So you got prayer for all circumstances. Someone is suffering, someone is cheerful, and someone is in a bout with sickness, if you will. And here, in each of these circumstances, is a call to prayer for us. I mean, there are mountaintops, there's valleys, there's happiness, there's heartache, and it's all bound up, is it not, within the Christian life. And in each circumstance for prayer, what James does, this is how we'll follow it. He sets down a condition 
for the prayer to take place, and then he gives the counsel on that condition. He gives the condition, and then he gives the counsel. So let's just dive right into the text. Look at verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So here first, we're to pray. We'll identify it this way, in times of trouble. We're to pray in times of trouble. Now, he mentions the word suffering there. That's the condition that he describes. And he addresses those to whom he wrote to, those who were suffering in trial, those who were under severe hardship. In fact, maybe let me ask you the question this morning. If I asked for a show of hands, how many would go up? Is any among you suffering? That's the thought. How many, even as David pray, could you, inter- could you find you know, truth in his prayer in the midst of the difficulty in Lamentations 3? Now, he mentions this condition. Look at it again in verse 13. He says, is any among you suffering? And here, it's the ideal of pain, but, but it's more than that. It's the ideal of enduring hardships. It's the thought of suffering wicked treatment. Is any among you, James writes, and he says by the Spirit of God to us, is any among you suffering? I mean, it certainly in the context could be the persecution of the wealthy landowners who had abused and treated wickedly their workers. And it's very possible that as they did not pay them, here they're suffering under the mistreatment of these wealthy, unbelieving landowners. And so James bids them, if you will, to pray. Now, when you think about it, life itself is full of troubles, is it not? I mean, it is full of sorrows. It is full of trials. It is full of afflictions. And you would agree, we live in a fallen world. And we suffer the loss of relationships. We suffer the loss of circumstances, physical troubles, disease. When you look back and you think about Adam, and you think about pre-fall, he was without disease. He was without defect. He was without deterioration. He was without decay. He was out without sickness and wickedness and even weakness. But when the fall came... We experience, do we not, the fall daily in our lives. And in addition to just that type of suffering, our struggle, the Bible tells us, is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities. It's against dark forces and evil places. And we stand, do we not, against a real enemy who is intelligent, who is powerful, who, is, who the Bible describes as he prowls about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So James just here calls to us and he says, is there any among you at Grace Church of the Valley who are suffering? In fact, that word is not far. Look down in James chapter 5. It was used, was it not, just a few verses earlier. Remember in verse 10? As an example, there's the word of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And we went through the prophets and then we addressed the life of Job and certainly Job suffered. And so you have that scripture and you have it in other places where sometimes suffering is linked with the persecution that the gospel brings, certainly. 
I'm thinking of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3 when Paul told Timothy to share in the suffering as a good soldier. In other words, he told Timothy, you need to share in the hardship that sometimes the gospel brings. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2.9, he said, I suffer hardship even to the imprisonment as a criminal. And so Paul looked at his life and he looked back at his career. And even as he wrote that book, he's sitting in a Roman jail cell and he's suffering hardship, if you will, for the purpose of the gospel. In fact, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5 to always be sober. And then he told him to endure hardship and endure suffering. There's our word mentioned again. I mean, life can be hard, can it not? And sometimes suffering comes into our life at different places. I was reminded this week of Elijah. I mean, when you go back, and we'll be there in January. By the way, you're still welcome to go to Israel. We're going to stand on top of Mount Carmel together, okay? But when you look back and you think of Elijah on top of that mountain, when just in the earlier chapter, he had actually had his hand in, you know, in seeing 450 prophets of Baal destroyed. But then somehow, after that incredible feat and that incredible power of display, in the very next chapter, a wicked woman, Jezebel, is after him. And it says in 1 Kings 19.4, he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. Amazing, after one of the greatest feats of a prophet of God, he wanted to see his life come to an end because a wicked woman by the name of Jezebel was pursuing him. I mean, possibly this morning you've come into worship with a heavy heart. You've come into worship with trial, with hardship, and you ask, well, what can I do? Well, let me take you to the council prescribed. Look at it. You can see it there in 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him, what? Pray. Let him pray. Here's the exhortation to us this morning, and it's put in what we call a present tense command. Let him, is the thought, keep praying. Praying, what is it? You know what prayer is. Speak to God. He says, if you're in the midst of suffering in your Christian life, if you're enduring some kind of hardship, then pray and keep praying and keep speaking to God. Now, you'll note there in verse 13, he doesn't specify what the subject is of the prayer, but it would make sense if the prayer were either for the relief of the suffering or endurance to survive the suffering that they are facing. So here's the exhortation, when crushed by trials, defeated by circumstances, pray. That's the thought. It it almost goes back to the beginning of James chapter 1 when he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He tells you to endure those trials. And in the next verse, he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom to do what? Let him ask of God. In other words, who gives to all men generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. So you've got to ask with God. You're in the midst of trial. You can't see your way out of it. You need the wisdom of God. There's an open invitation to pray. And here, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of hardship, you're encouraged 
to pray. In fact, look back in James 5.4. Here's encouragement where it says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed the fields which you, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Lord hears the cries of His people. And I'm thinking about different psalms, and some of these will come up on the Scripture as you see them, but think about Psalm 18. It's a little bit small, but 18, verse 4, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress... I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help. And from His temple, He heard my voice and my cry to Him reached His ears. Listen, if you find yourself in the midst of that, you are exhorted, I am exhorted to pray. If you're in the midst of suffering, then pray. You have other statements like this in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, you remember the context of Exodus, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmakers, and I know their sufferings. There he's linking, is he not? their cry, and He knows their suffering. He knows yours. So here's an open invitation from old camel knees himself who found himself in the midst of suffering to encourage you in the midst of suffering to pray. I think of these other Scriptures that come up. You know the one in Ephesians 6.18. With all prayer and petition, and here's the phrase that got me, pray at what? All times in the Spirit. In other words, you are to pray at all times in the Spirit. And here, linking that to the midst of this suffering and to the midst of hardship, you and I are exhorted to pray. Think of 1 Thessalonians. You know that one in 5.17. To pray without what? Ceasing. And we're to go to God in the midst of this suffering and to pray without ceasing. What a wonderful blessing 1 Peter 5.7 is. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He what? He cares for you. Now, I don't know if that's so much for prayer, but I think it could be casting all your anxiety on Him. You're taking all the problems, all the struggles, and you're putting it on Him. It is a call to prayer in that sense because He cares for you. And you and I certainly know Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let your request be made known to God. And then the next verse is that the God of peace shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, it could be that you just needed to come into the Lord's house today and you're under a burden. And the exhortation here in your speech is that if any among you is suffering, to let him pray. To be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication, let those requests be made known to God. I love this next text in 1 Peter 3.12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. 
Listen, our God is a gracious God. He is a giving God. He will never reproach you. If you ask him, he will give you wisdom and his ears are open to your prayer. Listen, if in the midst of suffering, go to him. You say, well, maybe I, I don't know about me, Scott. Maybe, maybe for other people. No, for you. It's an exhortation to you. I still find this scripture hard to believe. Do we have this one, Peter? This in 2 Chronicles 33. You, you can look at it on your own. He was, hard for me to say. If you read the background, you probably wouldn't think it's the same guy that you're reading about. This is a passage about wicked Manasseh, who I would say was one of the most evil, wicked, heinous, gross, vile kings that Israel ever had. But all I know is you got this passage at the end of his life in 33, that when he was in distress, he, entered, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. And when he prayed to him, he, God, was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then, it should, that should be then, Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Unbelievable. He heard Manasseh's prayer. I mean, when I read that as a young man, I had to read it. There must be two Manassehs. No, it's the wicked Manasseh. And he was converted at the end of his life. And it blows me away. It says he humbled himself. He prayed to God. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication. Listen, he's going to hear you this morning. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of the giving God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. And it will be given. So here is this entreaty for us to be a praying people in the midst of suffering and trouble, Grace Church of the Valley. I think of this next one, Hezekiah, who, was, who had to battle. Um, he, he was about ready to be wiped out. I don't know if we have that one. Keep going, another one. Do we have that one, Peter? It would be um, Second Kings. Um, maybe not. There, there, listen to this. In Second Kings. The, the nation was going to be wiped out by a, by a boastful king by the name of Sennacherib, 2 Kings chapter 19. And Sennacherib sent a letter to Hezekiah and said, basically, we're going to wipe you out. No other kingdom has been able to stand against us. What makes you think that Israel will be able to stand against our Assyrian army? Then it says this, Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went into the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. Right? He's praying. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, and of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. That's how he prayed. And before the sun had risen, you remember, the angel of the Lord destroyed 185,000 Assyrians. Listen, beloved, if you're suffering, 
Kakopatheo is the word. It's hardship. If you've come in under heavy heart, then pray and keep praying. And then there's those next scriptures that came up. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you. Listen, in difficult times, let me ask you as I ask my own heart. Do you turn to everyone else before turning to the face of God? I mean, we often forget our resources in prayer, do we not? In the words of the beloved hymn, do you remember that hymn? What, we, what a friend we have in Jesus. It goes like this. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to what? Bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in what? Prayer. Have we trials or temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. What a friend, or it says, it says this, can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. And then here's the last stanza. You remember this one? Oh, what peace we often what? Forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God. What? In prayer. Listen. Be a praying people in the midst of of suffering, beloved. So we're to pray in the midst of our trouble. But secondly, look there in the text. There's a second circumstance. We're to pray, verse 13, in times of happiness, okay? In times of happiness. He's covering prayer for all circumstances, isn't he? And he says there, look at the text, is anyone cheerful? So here's the condition described. You're not suffering, no, James or camel knees, we can call them, says you're cheerful. Now, cheerful is understood as kind of experiencing what it means is God's goodness. The word just means well in spirit. It means to be well in spirit and soul. It is a deep sense of well-being. I could put it this way. You're just cheerful. You're happy. In fact, four different times, I won't take you there, the word is used in the New Testament to speak of a deep inner joy, even in the face of conflict, okay? So it's this deep abiding sense of joy and happiness, of well-being in your spirit. And I don't think necessarily, it could be though, that the cheerfulness is because of physical blessings, it could just be that you're experiencing, if you will, the goodness of God. So watch what James says. He says you've got the suffering soul, then you've got the cheerful soul. You have the broken spirit, then you have the rejoicing spirit. One needs comfort, and another one has a song. So there's the condition described, cheerful. Look at the counsel, though that he prescribes. Look at it in verse 13. It says, if anyone is cheerful, let him, here's the text, sing praise. What a great text. To sing praise. 
That word there, to sing praise, if I gave you more of a technical word meaning of it, it, means, it used to mean in the Old Testament to pluck with a stringed instrument. Actually, when you look up at that word in the Old Testament, it meant to pluck a harp. But as you come to the New Testament, as well as in portions of the Old Testament, it just meant to sing, okay? So if you're well in spirit, here's your exhortation. Sing praises. Now that word there, solo, it's just the word that we get the psalms from, if you will. The psalms is this Greek word in the Old Testament. It comes from that word. It just, you could actually say here, when it says in verse 13, let him sing praises, you could just literally interpret, let him psalm. Let him psalm, which means let him sing praises. So if one is cheerful, literally, he's saying to you, make music. If you're cheerful this morning, if you're well in your soul, then you need to be one who's praising God. In fact, this is where the words used in the New Testament in Romans 15, 9, I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. If you're happy, then give him that blessing. Give him that praise for who he is. This is the same word. Do you remember, at least I'm thinking in the New American Standard, where if you're filled with the Spirit, you'll be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, and then it says, and making melody with your heart to the Lord. I think Jake's been doing that song to the Kids Fest, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Listen, if you're cheerful, then listen, don't hold back. You need to sing praises to His name. In fact, it's interesting because in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, Paul there puts prayer and singing in the same order as James does here. But this is the, the text. We're to praise God. Now, what's interesting is that praise and prayer are very closely related. In fact, praising God in song is really the form of a prayer. Let me show you. Look over at 2 Chronicles. Look at, oh, give thanks. You're praising. You give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of His wondrous works. You're praising God. You're giving thanks to the Lord. Even giving thanks is a form of praise and even prayer. I think some of you know this next one in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. And, and it's always to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So really, it's a form of a prayer, but it's, it's praising him. In fact, I think of these two together in Colossians where it told us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Listen, if you're suffering, then pray. If you're cheerful, then you ought to give praise. I'm thinking how these two are linked. I don't know if I have this one come up and there's, there's making melody is the thought. Keep going the next slide. Um, you have even Paul. Um, oh, that's the last one. Okay, then. You've got these together here in Acts where when Paul was in prison, 
and he was bleeding from being whipped and he's fastened to his chains. It says this, that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. So really, they function together. You're praying, talking to God, but you can sing and praise God says the same thing in Hebrews. Praise really is one of the greatest expressions of our prayers to God. Conversely, is it not true that one of the descriptions of the unsaved stated in Romans 1.21 would be this, that although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. See, an unbeliever doesn't ever praise God. He doesn't ever give thanks to God. So I like how Kent Hughes said it. He said, whether low or high, at the bottom or on the top, in the pits or on the pinnacle, we are to pray and give praise. Well said. Listen, when the world is on top of you, pray. When you are on top of the world, praise him. Now now listen, just one point of implication here. In the midst of suffering, pray. And you say, well, why? Because it guards against anger. And it guards against a self-pitying spirit. So when you find yourself in the midst of suffering, pray. It's going to guard you from anger. It's going to guard you from a self-pitying spirit. Pour out your heart to God. And when you are happy, praise God. You say, why? So you don't forget that He's the one that's blessing you. See, our tendency in the midst when we're happy is to forget that the reason of our joy and praise is from Him. So when you find yourself cheerful, then praise Him in that blessing. I think Calvin, the great man of God, who, by the way, if you ever read his biography, suffered tremendously, not only for the gospel, but many people don't know, he just suffered physically. He was a very weak man in his just physical capacity. But I think Calvin nailed this passage when he said this, he speaking of James, means that there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. For afflictions ought to stimulate us to pray. Prosperity supplies us with an occasion to praise God. But such, Calvin said, is the perverseness of men which they cannot rejoice without forgetting God and that when afflicted they are disheartened and driven to despair. So Calvin said, we ought then to keep within due bounds so that the joy, which usually makes us forget God, may induce us to set forth the goodness of God and that our sorrow may teach us to pray. End of quote. Well said by John Calvin. Listen, we have a God for all seasons. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praise. But then he adds a third one. Look there. Fascinating. Have you ever wondered what this is? He says, is anyone, he gives this third circumstance, verse 14, among you sick. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Let me just read it. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick 
which, stop by the way, that's what the faith healers use to conduct their services. They come out of this passage and talk about their prayer of faith, okay, that will save the one who is sick. And of course, if you don't save the one who is sick, and if the one who is sick is not healed, then, the, the, then they did, simply did not have enough faith. But here, James says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. This difficult passage has been created, has created much controversy over the years. As I mentioned, many modern day healers use this passage as verification for healing through the power of prayer. And this passage actually raises a number of interpretive questions. In fact, glance down at verse 14 when he says, Is anyone among you, what? Sick. What kind of sickness is he talking about? You would probably think, well, he's talking about physical sickness. Could be. Greek words, astheneo, it can describe physical sickness. But astheneo, nine different times in the New Testament, describes spiritual sickness. So we're going to have to understand, what kind of sickness is he talking about here? What's in view in verse 14? And let me ask you this, why are the prayers of the elders different from those of other believers in 14 and 15? I mean, how does the priesthood of all the saints come in here? And if someone gets sick, whatever sickness that is, why would he therefore call on the elders and not call on the body of Christ? And then let me ask you this question. Does the prayer of faith in verse 15 always restore the sick? Always? I mean, why did Paul tell Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake? I mean, if you pray in faith, does it always restore the one who is sick? And how does sickness relate to sin in verse 15? And when you get to verse 16, look at it there in verse 16, when it says that, the, that you pray, you confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, what kind of healing is he talking about there? There's a lot of questions there. What's fascinating about this, I don't have time to go into this, but the Roman Catholic Church uses this scripture to support the doctrine of what they call the sacrament of extreme unction. That would be where a priest would come in and anoint a dying person with oil for the forgiveness of sins. What does this mean? What do the Roman Catholics teach? I mean, really, few scriptures in all few verses in all of the scriptures that are so misunderstood, so misapplied, so misinterpreted as these. You say, well, Scott, what's the answer to that? Well, you got to come back next week. It was too much with the Lord's Day communion. But we got to get to that stuff because it's, it's, it's actually one of the most fascinating passages in the New Testament, and it was too much. But you can see where James Camel Knees is going on this. If you're suffering, then let him or her keep praying. If you're cheerful, then sing praises. If you're sick, then the exhortation is to call on the elders. Interesting. And then it says, and then you'd wonder, why does he say call on the elders for the church and let them pray over them 
And then anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. What kind of anointing is that? What kind of oil is that? What's the purpose of that oil? Lots of stuff right in that passage. But we have a God for all circumstances, do we not? And that is what we need to focus on, even our time. Would you just bow your head as we prepare for the Lord's table even now? Maybe just as you bow your head as the worship team comes forward, as maybe the men come forward to prepare for the plate that will be passed amongst us. What a wonderful opportunity to come to the Lord's table in the midst of this passage. Let me just give you a moment here.